Brene Brown and I first met maybe uh, eight-ish years ago when we were speaking at the same conference, and then uh, we kind of clicked immediately, ended up grabbing a bite together, and we've been sort of like weaving in and out and uh, following each other and chatting here and there about everything from life to uh, obsessive uh, <laughs> desires to listen to Rush music. And a couple of years back, we sat down, or I sat down with uh, Brene, and we had this really deep conversation about shame, vulnerability, uncertainty, finding your voice, standing up, and um, what happens when you do that and uh, how to let your bigger, deeper truths out. That conversation has only become more important, more relevant over the years. And as we do generally every year, these last couple of weeks of August, we like to bring back conversations, some of the the most provocative, uh, most thought-provoking conversations that we've had over the years. And this conversation with Brene was certainly one of them, certainly uh, something that is timeless and as time-sensitive as uh, and important now as it was the day we first recorded it, if not more so. We thought this would be a great time to revisit that. So I'm going to leave you with this conversation with Brene Brown. Um, you might want to even take a pen and pencil along with you because you'll probably find yourself pausing a whole bunch of times and taking notes. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good Life Project is sponsored by Cozy Earth. So you know those moments where you slip into something ridiculously soft and comfortable and it kind of feels like a warm hug? That's the Cozy Earth experience. I can still remember the first time I tried their bamboo sheets. It was like wrapping myself in a cozy cloud. But Cozy Earth is not just about bedding. They've got an entire line of loungewear that'll make you never want to change out of your pajamas. My personal favorite is their bamboo joggers. Like everything else they make, they're just incredibly soft and breathable and temperature regulating so you never get too hot or too cold. Perfect for those lazy Sunday mornings or bopping around the house. And the best part, Cozy Earth's commitment to quality means all their products come with a 100-night sleep trial and a 10-year warranty. So if you're looking to transform your home into a sanctuary of comfort and luxury, I highly recommend giving Cozy Earth a try. Save up to 35% on Cozy Earth loungewear, pajamas, bedding, bath towels, and more. Go to CozyEarth.com and enter the promo code GOODLIFE at checkout for up to 35% off. That's CozyEarth.com promo code GOODLIFE or just click on the link in the show notes and enter the code GOODLIFE. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. I want to go through a whole bunch of different things with you, and I want to get into the current sort of like topic that you're exploring, but one of my fascinations with you is Uh-oh. you... <laughs> I, like, ah! <laughs> I have many fascinations. <laughs> is... um. You present, so like when I first saw your TED Talks, I was blown away, as were millions and billions of people. Um, You present as this radiant, wise, snarky, funny presence. And I'm always curious when I see that somebody, somebody who's so strong and so powerful and so full of life, um, is this something that you sort of like 
stepped into later in life or were you the kid who sort of manifested this also? No, I was not. A, definitely, I was not the kid. Um, you know, I'm a shame and vulnerability researcher, so <laughs> we teach what we have. Comes from somewhere, yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, it's like, you don't have to be forward to know that there's... I think, no, I, I think I stepped into it much later in life, and I think what I stepped into was understanding that the weird, introverted, pattern-seeing person that I was, what I stepped into is a sense of, I like that person. Mm-hmm. And I and I want to be that person. And but I think I dreaded being that person growing up. I think I, I thought, oh, something's off base because it's not like you know, I grew up watching, you know, I went to Greece twenty five times when it came out. <laughs> you know, like right. I wanted to be that person. I wanted to be Olivia Newton John with a cigarette and a cat suit. You know, winning over John Travolta, like I I didn't want to be the, I didn't think, you know, I'm awesome. I'm 13. I'm going to be a qualitative researcher and study things that (laughs) scare the shit out of people. Right on. You know, I thought like, I want to date with a quarterback. Yeah, because that's how I was raised. And so the things that about me that I love now, I were painful probably then. Mm -hmm. Like I've always seen things in patterns. And I didn't know that there was like a job, like that that's what qualitative researchers do. So I just thought maybe I was a part of the underworld or something or something. I thought it was like, I thought it was weird and I didn't fit in really. I so, didn't have a sense of belonging. I mean, which, which is probably a more common experience than most people own up to. Yeah. I think that makes me in the majority for sure. Yeah. Maybe the, I just, yeah. Um, I, so at, at what point do you start to realize in your life that, that in fact, that is, that does make you in the majority? When I started doing this work, I mean, I think that's, that's the gift of doing this work is that I know no matter how bleak the feeling, how desperate the feeling, how weird the experience or smell or idea that none of us are alone. Mm. Um, some, I did a radio show on Wisconsin public radio a couple days ago and a caller called in and shared a Thich Nhat Hanh quote with me. Um, that just brought me to my knees. It said, um, our purpose, and I'm kind of probably going to butcher it a little bit, but our sole purpose here is to get over the, the illusion of our separateness, you know? And I think that's what my work is. Like we're all in this together. And I had no idea that the things that made me feel so much on the outside were the things that would ultimately, when I stepped into some self-worth, be the things that connected me the strongest to other people. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it does. I'm, I'm curious also whether it was an evolutionary um, experience for you to realize this, or whether there were moments, you know, were there sort of like decisive moments or experiences with people or things that made you say, "Okay, <laughs> I'm starting to get that there's there's a different way to live in the world, and I want to be a part of figuring that out." No, there was a decisive moment. Yeah. There were, yeah, I'm not like a slow unraveling kind of person <laughs> as much as I would like to be. No, there was a moment. I mean, I can picture, I know what I was wearing. Like it was in November of 2006. I was at my, I had a wooden red painted breakfast room table. I was sitting at the table. I was coding a bunch of new data, asking this new question for the first time, going back into the shame data um, and saying, well, okay, I understand what shame is and I understand how that operates in our lives, but what about these men and women who are living wholeheartedly, like who are really all in, what did they have in common? And I had giant, um, you know, those post-it notes that are poster size. Mm. I had them all over my kitchen and my living room and I was writing down words and basically what emerged from that process were two lists. Like here are the behaviors that the wholehearted folks are engaging in and here's what they are trying to let go of. Here's what they're trying to move away from in their lives. And the move away from list was, it was as if someone described me on a list. Mm. Like I was every, I called it the shit list. I was everything on that list. Um, judgmental, perfectionistic, all work. Um, not only no play, no rest, but kind of disregard for play and rest and people who thought it was important. So you're coming at it from this like science mind. Like oh, let yeah. me just figure this out. And then you're looking at this and you're like, oh my. This is personal. 
oh, I, I was devastated. Huh. I couldn't believe it. I just remember folding my hands up on the top of the table and putting my head down and just thinking. Because, you know, I think up until that moment and then the work that followed, I trusted my professional self immensely, but didn't trust my personal self as much. So I knew that I, I know I'm a good researcher. And so I knew if these words were emerging, like these qualities were important, these choices, mm. doing something creative, you know, like that's a great example. Like creativity emerged is so important. Comparison emerged as the shame counterpoint to that. Mm. And I was the most comparative person you could, I mean, every, I was always comparing myself to other people and I was scoffing at creativity. Like people would say, Hey, do you want to go do a painting class with me? Or do you want a scrapbook? And up until that moment, I would say, no, I thought it was flaky and self-indulgent and I'm not to really do that kind of crap. I'm mm -hmm. busy working. So yeah, it was, there was a moment that so, shifted. So I, and I actually want to, I want to kind of go a little bit deeper there, but before that for you've used the word wholeheartedness a lot. Talk to me about that. What is it? What do you mean when you use that? that phrase? I was trying to figure out a word. One of the, I'm a grounded theory researcher, which means we take, we develop theory from people's lived experiences. And mm. then our primary job is to language it in a way that resonates with people. And so I was trying to figure out what's a word for people that I would describe as all in who are just really living and loving entirely. Mm. Um, and wholehearted is language in actually in the Book of Common Prayer that in the Episcopal Church that we use. And um, it, there's this line that says, I have not loved you with my whole heart. And that was always very powerful for me when I said it. And so the word that came to mind was wholehearted. So, which, which is kind of fascinating right there too, because you're, you're taking some, a, a term which comes from a place which is very not scientific, it's very faith-based. Super faith-based. And then you're bringing it into like your world, which is like totally linear, like prove it or, or, you know, it doesn't matter, you know, what happens, you know, like, how do you measure that? <laughs> no, it's true. And I've received, a, I got a lot of flack from it too. Huh. From, from the academic community? Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Just for the use of the term. Yeah. You shouldn't name constructs, things are, are, that are immeasurable. Mm. And so that was hard for me because you know, one of the things I talk about in the TED Talk is that I used to, I had a, a little sign in my office when I was a doctoral student teaching that said, if you can't measure it, it doesn't exist. Right. And I loved thinking that we could live in that world. Um, now I have a sign above my study that says, if you can measure it, it's probably not that important. <laughs> I love it. Um, well, it's and, like the shadow side. It right? is a shadow side. Um, and so I think I didn't care at that point. I just felt like I was onto something that was super important for me personally and it resonated with me and you know, what would, what else would you call it? Social adaptability. It's no. not, that's not what I was looking for. I was looking for wholeheartedness. Yeah. And, and it's something that the, the common person. Yeah. Can, can, I mean, I'm sure there's, there's enough ambiguity so that people can kind of like say like, this is how I feel wholeheartedness applies in my world, in my life, but there's enough universality to the term that I think people just kind of get what it's about. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that's my job as a researcher. Like one of the things I've never really talked about this before, but I think you're an interesting, you'd be as, as the uncertainty person, yeah. you'd be a great person to talk to about this, that there is one of the greatest losses I think that is happening in our world today is that academics are shamed for accessibility. Hmm. I mean, it makes me teary-eyed because it makes me think how much great information we're losing, even whether you buy into it or if it's real or not real, that we're losing the debate and the discourse because to be accessible is some kind of really like albatross. It's like if you're accessible and people understand your work, that means you're not very smart. Hmm. Um, and so to me... So basically you're writing only for people that are in rarefied air. And, and if you're if the average person on the street can understand it, there's something wrong with what you're doing. Right. And there's, I mean, and really there's like interesting journal articles that say, you know, the average academic journal article, the average one, not the one that makes it into the times or yeah. something is read by 10 people. Hmm. And then I think eight of them are probably just checking to see if they're referenced in it, you know? <laughs> um, and so to me, I had no interest in that for this reason. It's an interesting backstory. 
when I did the shame research, because I'm a qualitative researcher, I would sit down like we're sitting down and collect data and talk to people about their stories. It was the first time I'd ever done research when people, when we were done with the interview, looked at me pleadingly and said, when you figure this out, you're mm. going to tell me, right? And my answer in the beginning was no, I'm going to publish it in something that you'll never have access to. Ouch. Right. That was my, I didn't say that, but that's what I thought. And then I thought, you know what? I'm not going to do that anymore. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to spend my time. I mean, I still have to do it and I probably should do it more. Um, but I don't want to spend my time doing something that's not, in my opinion, moving people forward. Mm. And if I can't pick it up and read it and my friends can't pick it up and read it and I have to look up words in a thesaurus to sound smart, I'm not doing it anymore. It's not why I'm here. It's not in service of my work. And my faith is really an organizing principle in my life and it, and, and it, it pushes up against that value. Mm. So that's kind of how wholehearted I was scared at first. That I would imagine you would be. Yeah. I mean, because you're really bringing two worlds together in a way where each world probably has substantial doubt about <laughs> sort of like the validity of the other one. And also, um, and like you said, especially because you operate and you're in your living, like in, in an academic setting. So, you know, that's got to bring on a lot of fear. It's like, you know, am I going to be drummed out of my profession? And am I going to like just, you know, Am I going to be still there, but I'll be the laughing stop of my profession for the rest of my career? You know, versus is this work so powerful that it needs, it's, it's the work that I can't not do and it must get out. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because grounded theory in itself is very controversial. I think in a lot of academic places, because, because you don't start with existing theories and prove and disprove them. Mm. You start from people's lived experiences. You often come up with conclusions that bump up hard against what's already mm. established yeah. in literature. So, and I love it because Glazer and Strauss who developed the, I think they were like spirited in terms of my approach. Um, they said, use names that resonate with people. And so one of the ways we measure the accuracy of our theories is resonance, fit. Do mm. people see themselves in their lives and their stories and the narratives that you're creating with your data? And I love that because if it's, if it doesn't ring true, then. No. Which, which is kind of fascinating for me also because the entrepreneur in me and, and the writer in me, um, looks at that model and that's actually, that's the model that actually builds the most successful businesses. But it's the exact opposite model that most entrepreneurs start with. Most entrepreneurs get an idea for a product or a service or solution and then they go looking for a market. Right. And then they're like, okay, who are the people that we can sell this to? And whereas, you know, rather than saying, okay, let me just reach out to a community that I feel like I want to be in service of and have really deep, intense conversations with them. And maybe I'm part of that community. Very likely I right. am. You know, so let me start with my own experience and then with the experience of people in this community and find out what are they feeling? What are they not feeling? What's the conversation that's already going on in their head? And can I build messaging and solutions around that in a way that can be make me of further service to them and in doing so, create a living, a career, a business that, that builds around that and in my experience, I love that. Those are the people where not only individually do you really come alive, but those are the businesses that have profound impact in the world and that kind of catch fire because you're, you're not trying to sell something to anybody. You're simply caring about them so deeply that you take the time to understand what they need and then just giving it to them. And so many times people don't do that. And so really, so from the business side, it's this, it's this interesting overlay with what you're saying, the approach to how you research. I, I have never thought about that until this exact second, mm. but I love that. And I think it's exactly grounded theory because what's interesting, I, I never thought it. I, entrepreneurship, I think of, I've got some, a really cool thing. Right. Exactly. Let me, find let me go find somebody who it. wants it. Yeah. yeah. But, um, in grounded theory, there's the, the whole, the whole thing is it's called trust and emergence is the axiom. Mm trust in what emerges from the data, trust in people's lived experiences and mm. their perception of those experiences. Um, but what you do is you, the goal of grounded theory is to find out what is the main concern of a group of people you want to know, know more about. And then your theory should explain how they're trying to continually resolve that concern. Mm. So it's very much in line. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, Kind of like, theory entrepreneurship, I like it. No, it is. I mean, you know, like the, the really good entrepreneurs know that, you know, you come in 
And you're probably going to start out, you know, you, there's, we're human beings, so there's no way we can start the process without certain assumptions. Right. You know, like they're, they're just going to be there. Um, but the most successful people will always be the ones that are open to serendipity or open to the market proving them wrong and then listening to what the market says is right and then deciding whether they actually want to create that or not. The exact same. Yeah. So it's, it's gotten, now I want to learn more about like sort of like your whole methodology. No, I will, I'll give you something on because yeah. it's exactly the same. And in fact, you evaluate a theory that's a, a grounded theory. One of the, one of the, the codes we live by is, and it's so much in line with entrepreneurship now that you pointed this incredible thing out. Um, a theory can never be as good, is, is only as good as its ability to work new data. Mm. So like a business yeah. would only be as good as its ability to address the evolving and changing needs of the market, right? right? Which is, is where right? a lot of big com- bigger companies get in huge trouble because they started and maybe they were actually really certain they understood the pain points, the needs of a market when they started and they served it beautifully. But markets aren't stationary, you know, like things. They're living, breathing beasts that move and change and morph, especially in the last four or five years. We've oh, yeah. seen that in a profound way. And I've, I've talked to so many people who are, who are past the, what you probably consider classic entrepreneur, like real big established businesses. And their, their businesses are shrinking fast and they're just thinking, we're going under, you know, rather than, um, well, no, actually, all the assumptions that we built around are no longer valid. So we actually, we don't have to just keep trying to, you know, like work on that same model. We can actually look for where the pain points and the conversations have moved to and see if we can adapt to what we do and how we do it to that, the, those new needs. Um, a lot of people don't want to do that. They're so vested in the way things work. Right. And they, they're terrified. And, and this is, I'm so curious what you think about this also. Most people who start businesses, um, they start them and they accept that there's a certain amount of uncertainty and risk and fear and anxiety and all this stuff and yeah. failure. Um, and very often it's because part of the dynamic is they don't have a whole lot to lose in the beginning. Right. Then they build something substantial. Now they do have a lot to lose. So when I was talking about like that business that now has to adapt to a whole different thing, now that they're in a place where they, they don't have, there's a lot to lose if they, you know, sort of like guess wrong or they don't, um, they become incredibly fearful in a way that they didn't, or they, they're not able to move through the fear and the change and the uncertainty in a way that um, they were much more able to right. when they started a business, which really ties in, I think, with a lot of your exploration of vulnerability. Yeah, I, you're going to be hard-pressed to get me shaking loose this parallel between business, and I'm so obsessed with it now. It's so fascinating because, you know, the axiom, again, of trust in the emergence is, I think what I've seen in my experience talking to businesses and talking to not just entrepreneurs, but big corporations is they don't, they don't trust in the process that brought them success. Yeah. (laughs) They start to trust in the product of the process. Right. Right. And they lose their trust for the process, which is trust in emergence, trust the people you're serving. And so the same is true with researchers. Like for me, the minute I say, I don't care what emerges from this interview with Jonathan, I've already got our theory out there in the academic literature. This has got to hold up. And the minute I shift, my work is dead. Mm. It no longer rings true. It's not innovative. It's not exciting. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Good Life Project is brought to you by LinkedIn Ads. So have you ever felt the challenge of reaching a key decision maker in the B2B world? Imagine connecting with a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders. Well, LinkedIn Ads provides precision targeting and measurement tools tailored for B2B marketers, outperforming other platforms with two to five times higher ROAS in technology. Plus, 79% of B2B content marketers vouch for LinkedIn Ads' exceptional paid media results. What sets LinkedIn ads apart is their understanding of the complex B2B landscape. They have built a platform to support you through intricate decision-making processes. I've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times to help grow our work-focused venture, Spark Endeavors, and I've been seriously impressed by the performance. So if you're ready to elevate your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads. 
make B2B marketing everything it can be and get a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Good Life Project is supported by Dell. So seasons change. So why not your tech? Upgrade now during the Dell Technologies Summer Sale event and save on select PCs like the XPS 16 powered by Intel Core processors. You'll be able to bring your most intensive project to life with built-in AI, minimalistic design, immersive visuals, and cinematic audio. Plus, complete your dream setup with deals on select monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop at dell.com deals, you'll have access to exceptional tech and electronics, plus free shipping on everything. Amazing prices await you for a limited time only at dell.com slash deals. That's dell.com slash deals or just click the link in the show notes. You know, Barney Glazer, one of the founders of Grounded Theory, calls it the drugless trip. You have to have a real, oh, you have to have a real comfort with uncertainty and vulnerability to do the kind of research I do. You lose a lot of, like I mentor a lot of doctoral students and sit on a lot of dissertations for Grounded Theory folks who get halfway through and think, this is too uncertain. Mm -hmm. I wanna go back to the take an existing theory, prove or disprove it with data, write it up, be done. I don't wanna do, I don't wanna trust an emergence and let something new and that we haven't talked about yet emerge. I don't have the stomach for it. You know, and so, so for me, the vulnerability piece, um, and I get that because I was that person. And so... And, and I think we're all that person. We're all that down. person, yeah. And, and you know, that's important like we, because... Right, it's, it's not like, you know, I mean, maybe there are these freakish people, you know, they, this really thin slice of humanity that just doesn't feel it or their brains are soft wires in the beginning to process it differently. But most of us, it hurts. <laughs> it does hurt. And, and, you know, and to say I wasn't one of those people is exactly against, like, I have the four myths of vulnerability and daring greatly. And the first one is that it's weakness. Mm, yeah. You know, and I define vulnerability as uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. Right. And so I think one of the reasons we lose tolerance for it or we don't, we can't sit with the process is because we've been raised to believe that being vulnerable and walking into a meeting with, you know, funders or whomever or whatever your situation is and saying, I don't know. I mean, some of the most incredible examples that I read and include in the book are about business people who stand up in front of their leadership and say, I don't know what to do next. And you may know more than I do. I need your help. That's powerful. Yeah. And that is the the single most terrifying thing that I think any leader could do, but also that, you know, like the, maybe the most powerful thing they could do simultaneously. It's really interesting. But, but I think, like, are you, like, like you were saying, though, it, people think it's, it's all, if I do that, I'm weak. Right. Pete Fuda, who is a leadership, he, he's a researcher in Australia and Sydney, and he studies transformative, uh, transformative leadership. And he does long case studies um, over five and six years studying leadership and how it transforms within an organization. And he has this great article that was in Harvard Business Review where he uses metaphors to talk about what transformative leaders share in common. And one of them is the snowball. 
and he's and he tells the story of a of a CEO, a new CEO who kind of came aboard and was very directive, very instructive, and things really started unraveling. Mm. And he decided to kind of risk vulnerability and stood up in front of brought all of his leaders together and said, I'm giving feedback that my style, the way I communicate and give you feedback, is is pushing innovation down. I need your help. I need to know how to be better at this. I need to know how to work with mm. you. And what Pete found in his research, not only in this case, but across the, the, the cultures he was studying, is that it created this huge snowball effect that those leaders in turn felt permission to stand with their teams and say, I can't do this without you. And mm, those people, yeah. and then it created this thing that took off through the culture and what it shook loose was it, it got so big and fast, the momentum of it, that it shook loose all the drag. That people that were not willing to say, I need help, I don't know, I'm in over my head, couldn't hold on anymore in the right. culture. Is that fascinating? Yeah, that's amazing. And, and it, it also really speaks to the top down, you know, like idea that it all comes from the people that are at the very tip top. You know, like if that one person, you know, like if, if you know, have a, a CEO and, and and she or he doesn't actually say, okay, I'm owning this myself. Um, nobody else in an organization will own it. And, and the reverse is true too. You know, like the same snowball effect. If that person steps up and says, yeah, um, I don't know which way is up right now, uh, but we're all really smart. Let's see if we can figure this out together. I mean, and it's so funny too, because I've had so many conversations, I'm sure you have also with sort of management teams, leadership people, and they're like, yeah. well, how do we get the people under us to buy this or to act in this way or to create in this way. And like the first question is like, well, are you behaving yeah. in that way or yeah. acting in that way? I'm like, no, 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 this isn't about me. Right. It's like, no, actually it is. Right. You know, you everything that you say, and this is as a parent, you know this, right? That, I mean, that's it's like, that's hello, like, you know, like you can't say do this if like then you're doing something completely different because your kids are going to look at you and be like, mm-mm. Right. So same thing in organizations. It's the same dynamic, but people don't see that. No, I think one of the things that I say that maybe pisses people off more than anything else I say, whether it's leaders, parents, is that we cannot give people what we don't have. Mm. And we can't ask people to do what we're not doing. And that makes people crazy. And I get it as a parent, especially because, you know, when I tell parents, you can't raise a child with a greater sense of resilience than your own. Mm. You can't raise a child with more self-compassion than what you have. They're like, they get twitchy, they get crunchy and yeah. But when I tell people, I'm not sure that you can love a child more than you love yourself, people get hostile. Nah, I bet. Because people want to say, you know, that's crazy. I, I love my kids way more than I love myself. And it's often the parents of very young children who say that. What's interesting to me is it's the parents of teens who say, oh God, I get that. Because what happens is fourth, fifth grade, certainly middle school, beginning of high school, when our kids start to become us in some ways, mm. or we see our partners and things that bug the crap out of us about our partners emerge in our kids are the things that bug us about us. Right. That self-compassion or that compassion turns to judgment. Like, mm. what do you mean you didn't have anyone to sit with at lunch? And rather than saying, oh God, I remember that, let's talk about that. You say, well, pull your hair back and wear some of those cute outfits I bought you. And then maybe your friends will want to sit with you. Mm. And that's your stuff. Yeah, and I think we've all, it's like, you know, like, as you're saying this, I'm, I'm like scanning right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, okay, I like consider myself a pretty, you know, like compassionate, you know, like open guy, but I'm like, I'm sure there've been so many things where I've just reacted without even realizing that I'm reacting because of a cap on my own capability to deal with my own stuff and it's manifesting in my response to other people. I, you know, which is, um, it's not easy to own that. No, and I've done it. I mean, you know, it's, it's people say, well, we can't all be, you know, shame-free all the time like you. And I'm, I think to myself, I've never been a parent and not been a shame researcher. I mean, I started just around the time mm. my daughter was born right before and I've done it because we're human. And I think that's why I think, you know, I talk a lot about the gifts of imperfect parenting. I think it's those moments where, I mean, I remember telling Ellen one time, she 
she was doing this whole thing about she wore a side ponytail. She came home with a, a different ponytail. I said, hey, what happened to your side ponytail? <laughs> she said, oh, I took it out because my friends thought it looked terrible. And I said, but I thought you loved it. And she said, yeah, but you know, they gave me a hard time. And so I went into the whole, like, you have to do what you love, not what other people think. And then five minutes later, I'm telling Steve, you've got to pull the Christmas lights out of the yard. Do you, what are my neighbors going to think? <laughs> you know, and Ellen's five feet away from me, you know, and she said, I don't understand. And I said, you don't understand what? She goes, the ponytail, the lights. Huh. You know, I'm like, she's oh, keeping you honest. Yeah. I'm like, Oh my God, you're right. It's just rhetoric. Mm. You know, if I tell my daughter, your body's beautiful, you know, our value would probably be to say something like, this is the body that God gave you and it's strong and, and wonderful. And, you know, and then she walks in and I'm using a lot of hateful self-talk about my jeans not fitting. Mm. Which one do you think matters the most? Right. But it's the same with leaders. You know, if leaders say to teams, you know, hey, we want innovation, so we all expect failure. Fail often, fail quick, clean it up and move on. But they see a leader scared to death of failing, scared of trying, scared of being uncertain or vulnerable. Then the message is that other stuff is lip service. This is about perfection. And even if it stifles creativity, we can't be wrong. Right. So one, so one of the big things is that people perceive vulnerability as weakness. Yeah. And, and it seems like the answer is you got to own the change um, and you, you basically have to say, okay, yeah. Uh, but I mean, how do you do that? I mean, if you're somebody where you're, you know, let's say you're a leader, you're a parent, you're just a creator, you're an artist, you know, and you want to do something and, um, and you're, you're terrified of being vulnerable. You're a human being living in the world who's terrified of, of opening up and revealing who you are, you know, like going into the uncertainty, the risk. Yeah. Um, how do you make that jump? Well, I think, I think the first place is, I mean, and it may be different whether you're a cognitive person or a feel your way through person, but mm -hmm. I think for those of us who think first and feel second, which would be me, um, <laughs> I think getting clear on what vulnerability is and isn't is really important for this reason. 12 years of research, I cannot find a single example of courage, of moral courage, spiritual courage, leadership courage. I cannot find a single example in our data of courage that was not based on sheer vulnerability. Mm. And so I think one of the things we have to do, first of all, is dispel these myths. I mean, and get clear in our values. I mean, for me, I don't, it doesn't hurt less when I get criticized, when I put myself out there, or when you put yourself out there, people who are trying to, you know, daring greatly from the Roosevelt quote, right. you know, it's One of my favorite the, quotes, by the way. Is it really? Saw, yeah, yeah, as soon as I saw Ted, I was like, I know where that's from. You did? <laughs> totally. I love that. Yeah. It's not the critic who counts. It's not the man who points at the strong man as he stumbles or how the, you know, points out how the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit goes to those of us who are in the arena who, I mean, to totally paraphrase, getting hurt, their asses kicked sometimes, falling on our faces, failing, sometimes victorious, but at least when we're failing, we're daring greatly. I think when I talk to people who've made the transition from, I really want to put these homemade journals on Etsy, <laughs> but I'm really afraid to do right. that. I really want to ask my boss for this promotion or this raise. I really want to share this idea at the PTO meeting next week. When I asked people, where did you muster up the courage? How did you screw up the courage to do this? The answer was always, I got very clear that being courageous was more important to me as a value than succeeding. Hmm. And so to me, it comes down to an area of your work that I think is so important, really serious intention setting and yeah. very clear values alignment, you know, and I think it, it is very necessary to have people in our lives who when we dare greatly, when we're vulnerable, when we try something new and it doesn't work out and we come up short, who are willing to look at us and say, but you were brave. Yeah. You know? I, I think those people, having those people around you are so, and, and that's, I'm sure you've experienced the same thing. 
um, I've had so many conversations with people where they said, I don't have those people. Yeah. What do I do? Because every time I do this, like everybody around me lines up and says, told you so, you're an idiot. You know, like no I doubt. knew you were going to fail. And um, which, is, which is kind of interesting because to me, one of the potential great equalizers there is technology, the, the potential to use technology to flatten the world and find people like that. Um, and it's, it's not true. the same thing as the people who live in your neighborhood you can hug and kiss right. and like just have a cup of coffee with. And it's not the same. I would love to say it is because, you know, like I live and breathe in that world a lot. Yeah. It's not. Um, but I think it helps it, to, to have access to a small group of people who may be dotted in, you know, five different countries, but they're deeply committed to each other and share the same value set. To me, I've seen that help people who live in a small town somewhere and are in a family where where that approach to life is completely um, rejected. Um, it, I, but I think, I think it's a very, it's, it's a tough problem. This story is presented by Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA produced by ACAST Creative. 25 years ago, Invesco QQQ rethought the investing landscape by providing access to the NASDAQ's 100 most innovative companies all in one ETF. With Invesco QQQ, investors saw all the possibilities that innovation could deliver. Personally, I had a wake-up call in my 30s that led me to invest deeply in myself to unlock new possibilities. I walked away from a career as a lawyer, overhauled my lifestyle through mindset and exercise and nutrition, and completely reimagined my career. And it was unsettling at times, but that investment in my potential allowed me to live so much more creatively and with purpose and passion. Invesco is proud to sponsor the new Ways to Win podcast, hosted by longtime coaches and mentors Craig Robinson and John Calipari. So in Ways to Win, the coaches use their on-court wisdom to solve for off-court problems and help you find a winning formula for success. In this clip from the show, we'll hear Craig share his advice for weighing a decision to switch from investment banking to full-time coaching. Let's take a listen. The advice that I would give somebody who's weighing a decision that is less risky or more risky, I always tell them to work back from what they're wanting to accomplish right, what the reward is, what's at the end, and work back and try and set yourself up to get to where you wanna get to. Because sometimes taking a risk is the right thing to do to get something that you want. And what I try and counsel people to do is not be afraid to take risks. Because if you set yourself up properly with a good education, a great network of friends, and you've got family behind you, you can usually weather most storms if things don't work out the way you thought they'd work out. So listen to Ways to Win wherever you get your podcasts to get more wisdom from Craig. Nobody knows what's ahead, but one thing's for certain. You can access tomorrow's innovation today with Invesco QQQ ETF. Let's rethink possibility. So thank you for listening to this special story brought to you in partnership with Invesco QQQ and produced by ACAST Creative. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETFs' risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more defined investments. The NASDAQ 100 index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco is not affiliated with Acast Creative. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business... A global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. One of the things that that I look at is um, I think a lot of times it's it's part of it is what we tell ourselves, but I think a lot of it is the questions we ask ourselves also around um, our ability to sort of unlock action 
in the face of perceived weakness and yeah. vulnerability. I think so many of us, all we focus on is what if I fail? Right. Rather than um, what if I succeed? Right. And what if I do nothing? Which is very often the most terrifying answer of the three. No, there's no doubt. And I mean, something you said about people who are surrounded by communities who are critical, I told you so, you were yeah. so stupid to do that. One thing that I think it's really important and I feel ethically bound to say to people a lot of times about the work is be clear that when you start to dare greatly, when you start to be vulnerable and take chances, you are going to be holding a very uncomfortable mirror up for mm. people. Yeah. And a lot of times if you're surrounded by people who say, I told you so, or who are critical, it's because daring greatly to watch someone be vulnerable and risk, to watch someone walk headlong into uncertainty is so uncomfortable for people who are not willing to do that, mm -hmm. that they're dying to see failure and to point it out as confirmation that my way of living right. is okay. And the whole dotted around, like, I think there was a group of women, we call ourselves the love bombers. Um, there's a group of women, um, they are artists, photographers, writers. I got a call one day from them, probably five, six years ago. They said, you don't know us. We know you from online. I think you read our blogs. You, we read yours. We're going to gather together on the Oregon coast. Would you like to join us? And I was like, oh, hell no. Um, like that's not, you know, like I was voted like least likely to show up with a group of hippie girls that's uh -huh. smoking clothes, like and doing art. Like I was like, no. And my husband was like, I think you might need this. I was like, are you kidding me? And he said, I think you should go. And it really changed my life because again, it was technology. And I totally agree with what you said. Um, when I'm throwing up and sick, these are not the people who hold my yeah. hair back. They're not the people who bring the casseroles over during hard times. But they are a group of people who, where we made an agreement that we would be vulnerable and brave together. And that we would create a space for each other where we never had to shrink when we were really proud of what we were doing, our successes. And we never had to puff up when we were feeling small and ashamed. That we were all going to be brave together and take our licks and, mm. you know, and so I think that's really important. Um, it was life changing for me. And so I think if you are in a small town, I think World Domination Summit. Yeah, great example. <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of people go to that just because they fly from all over the world because they can't find those people. And it's like their one time every year where they can like be on the ground with like minded people. And then they take that with them. I think a lot of things can start out digitally. Yeah. And then it'll, it stays in sort of this ethereal kind of supportive level. Yeah. But then you can meet somebody and spend three days with them. And then when you leave, it's a very different dynamic. It's a, it's a totally have, different. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and I think, yeah, like I would have never, I don't think I've ever done, I know before or since anything like I, my talk at World Domination yeah. Summit. Like I would have never have tried something so crazy <laughs> and out there had I not been, you know, around people who are there to explore how brave am I willing to be? Right. You know, and so I do think there's something about that. I think one of the other myths about vulnerability that you pointed, that you touched on was the idea that we can go it alone. Mm. You know, that's still, even, even in a world where people are pretty awake and conscious about connection, it's still a very highly regarded ideal. Mm-hmm. You know, this is where I quote White Snake in the book. You know, like, <laughs> right. here I go again on my own. Like, we all want to. By the way, I love your taste in music. <laughs> As like an old Rush, you know, like, yeah, fanatic. No. Yeah, I'm a Rush fanatic too. And so, yeah, that's one thing that's been so fun about the book. People are like, mostly guys were like, dude, you quoted Rush. <laughs> I know. <It's> like, <laughs> the <laughs> ultimate philosopher. <laughs> Neil Peart. I know. World peace. I think he could bring world peace. I think so. <laughs> um, but uh, no, I think this idea that we can go it alone and that I think we need people not only to support us, but I think we need people like to try on vulnerability with, to try it on and say, mm -hmm. hey, Jonathan Spernay, and I think I want to do this. I did that with Chris going back to WDS, World yeah. Domination Summit, like the night of rehearsals. I, I was there. You were I know. there. You know, I said, I'm seriously thinking about closing by doing a duet with you from the Glee version of a Journey song. <laughs> and he was like, I know. And his wife was like, yeah, there's no way he's ever going to do that. And I'm like, okay. And then I thought, okay, good. I was like, okay. So I just kind of moved away from it. And then I hear him like from the backstage go, 
but you are writing a book called Daring Greatly. So I was uh-huh. like, are you going to do it or not? And he's like, I'll do it if you do it. And But that's what I mean by trying it on. Because there was no doubt, I was seriously afraid. I thought it would, I put it at best 50-50 that anyone else would sing along. <laughs> and I thought, are you going to be okay if it's just you and me the whole time? And Chris goes, it's going to be a long song if that happens. And I'm like, well, I'll tell the guys, the AV guys to fade out. But it was a thousand people uh-huh. <laughs> staying on their chairs, you know, in the right. aisles, playing air guitar. It was fun. And so... And it turned into an extraordinary moment, a transcendent moment. It was one of the best moments of my life. Huh? I mean, it was... And I think, I mean, that's part of the message, right? Is that that's what you miss out on when you're not willing to go to that place. It is. And I read it, a con- you know, everyone, you know, because I still get, you know, comments from people that are like, don't stop believing or suck yeah. it. You know, like I still get those. But um, every now and then there'll be a comment like, that's the cheesiest thing I've ever heard of. And it doesn't, I feel total neutrality about that. Not even the need to defend it or anything. Because mm. my thought was, you weren't there because it was from people who weren't there. You didn't share that with us, and that's okay. Right. Um, because if you were there, it was fun. You know, and we sang together like we were 13 in the back of a car, <laughs> sneaking out on a Friday night. You know? <laughs> so, um, so, but I think you have to have a tribe to try on that stuff with. Yeah, I totally agree. It's, it makes, it's, it's, I, it's almost impossible for a lot of, not everybody. I think some people are kind of wired, you know, like. I think so together. too, yeah. But I don't think that's most people. I don't. And I, you know, I think the other thing that's important about that tribe that has really shifted in for me in the last year is I no longer really even, I have no intake at all of any feedback or criticism from anyone who's not in the arena. Mm-hmm. So unless you are in your own capacity, in your own world, in your own life, getting your ass kicked on occasion, I'm not interested in what you have to share with me about my work. What flipped that switch? A profound respect for myself and other people who are out there trying to do work and trying to walk into uncertainty and vulnerability and are really risking. Um, because it is so easy to make a life and a career out of sitting in the bleachers and making fun of people and putting them down. And so I think a profound respect for those of us who are out there. And what I realized too in my own life is the people who are doing that, who are in their own arena, I don't care what it is. You don't have to be a writer or speaking in public. I don't care if you're a teacher you know, like my sisters are teachers, you know, in my opinion, they walk in the arena every morning at seven 30. Right. Right. And so what I have found not only as a, my personal life, but professionally is the people who are in the arena and who are showing up and letting themselves be seen, give feedback that is far more constructive and far more helpful and mindful about what people can hear and not hear. And I mean, and I love, I mean, I'm an academic at heart, so I love debate and discourse. I love it when people email me and say, saw your talk, parts of it I liked, but you were completely remiss in not mentioning these three areas of the literature. Mm. How can you talk about vulnerability without quoting so-and-so about closeness or something? I love that. That makes me better. It makes my work better. People who make fun of me, I make fun of other people or say hateful things. People who say, I feel sorry for your kids. You know, people who say, if I looked like you, I'd embrace imperfection too. That Those kind of comments mm-hmm. that you get, you know, I just, I hate to get binary because it's not, it's who I'm trying not to be, but I'm still that person in some ways. And I really do believe you're either making the world a better place or you're not making it a worse place. I don't feel like there's a lot of neutrality and that's probably a little hard ass line to take. I don't, I don't want to sound like you're either with us or against us. Not my favorite quote or, you know, perspective, but I do feel like every day our choices have a huge impact on people. And 
someone told me this could be urban legend. I don't know. Maybe, you know, but I heard that Oprah Winfrey has this quote on her door, but it's a quote that I love. And it says, you're responsible for the energy you bring into this room. And I think people are responsible for the energy they put in the world and a fake avatar and a fake name and leaving a comment somewhere is not benign because I'll keep putting my work out there. Um, and you will probably keep putting your work out there and several people we know will probably keep, but there are people who have amazing gifts who could make the world an incredibly better place who won't put their work out there for that reason. You know, um, and that's a loss. And whether we know what that work was or not, we miss it and grieve it every day. There are songs that we need to hear. There's stories that need to be heard. There's work that needs to be seen. There's ideas that need to be implemented um, that we'll never see or know because there's so many people out there who are so reflexively cynical and critical and mean-spirited. I don't like it. Yeah. Do you like it? You know, it's something that I deal with every single day in my life. First thing I do when I wake up in the morning is I roll out of bed and I sit and I meditate for 25 minutes. And part of that is because it helps me enter every day with that sense of equanimity. Um, and the ability to, when needed, um, zoom the lens out more and look down on myself and, and get a better sense for when I'm reacting or responding with um, deliberation and intelligence. It's still a brutally hard thing for me to do because I'm an emotional person. Um, and I, and, and behind, because I operate so much of the time as a writer and behind the veil of anonymity um, that a lot of people have that you were describing in the online world, I get attacked. Um, and I just say to them, I'm, I'm, I'm always thinking to myself, would this person stand in front of me in a room with my kid next to me and right. say the same thing? Right. And, and I've got to believe that the answer would be no. I want to believe the answer would be no because I want to have that level of faith in humanity. But um, sometimes I, but it, it's not easy. And I know, to your point, I know I've had so many conversations with people who do not bring their art and their soul and their heart to the world um, because they know that there are people out there who will attack them um, in very, very, mean, um, vindictive, spiteful ways. And part of, I guess, my exploration has been to the point that you were making before. I've always been fascinated with the phenomenon of people who are even within your close inner circle, your family, your closest friends, either publicly or secretly rallying to see you fail. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of what, so I try and reframe, I try and understand, you know, um, I once heard a, you know, maybe it was something that I read or an interview that I saw with uh, the Dalai Lama um, where they asked him what his greatest fear was. And his greatest fear was losing compassion for the Chinese. It blew my mind. You know, and I'm just thinking to myself, if, if, I, can, oh, man. if I can try and practice compassion, meditate on compassion on a daily level in a, in a way that tries to allow me to step in the shoes of that person who is being this way towards me or towards someone I love, Maybe that's the, the beginning for me, um, but it doesn't make me okay with it. I would love to say it does. I would love to say I just, I'm good. I meditate, I do my mindfulness, and I experience it, and then I let it go. But, but I don't. I'm human, you know, and it hurts. But um, far better that oh. than living in the great twilight that knows neither victory nor success. Yeah, so. I think... That's the thing. I think I've seen the pain and talked to people about the pain of having the anonymous critic, but also having the family who's rallying for failure yeah. to have the partner who's just chomping on the bit to say, I told you so to have the children who are looking at you with disappointment. You know, the greatest pain I've ever seen in my work is from people who have spent their lives on the outside of the arena yeah. wondering, what would have what would have happened had I shown up? Mm. That's a pain that to me, maybe it's because I'm I'm 46, has become a far greater fear of mine 
than having to dodge some hurt, you know, some hurt feelings sometimes. And, um, yeah, the, what, what if I would have shown up and been seen? Yeah. And I'm in the same place and same age, by the way. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, me too. Um, I wouldn't so go back for love or money. One final question as yeah. we wrap this up. So the name of this project is called the good life project. And, um, so when I, when you hear that phrase or, and, or if I ask you the question to you, what does it mean to live a good life? What comes up? Gratitude. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think for me, a good life is one, a good life happens when you stop and are grateful for the ordinary moments that so many of us just steamroll over to try to find those extraordinary moments. Um, so to me, my good life is soccer practice and carpool line mm -hmm. and tuck-ins and date night. And that's a good life for me. I mean, and, and knowing that it's good and acknowledging and stopping that it's good and saying, this is good. Mm -hmm. I love that. Yeah. So if you're still listening, thank you, thank you, thank you. I just completely love that you enjoyed this episode so much that you've listened until now. You're an awesome human being. And while we're wrapping things up, might as well um, share a quick shout out to our super cool brand partners. If you love the show, and I'm guessing you do because you're still here, please support them. They help make the podcast possible. Check out the links in today's show notes. And don't forget also your spot at this year's Camp GLP. As we recently announced, this will be our final year. We're expecting about 400 amazing humans from all around the world. It's going to be more epic than ever. And if you've been waiting, be sure to register soon. And you can find that link at goodlifeproject.com slash camp today, or just click the link in the show notes. See you next week.